Thank you, Molly. Good morning. Res kids, you guys are dismissed for class. After they clear the runways, ushers, you guys are free to come and receive the morning's tithes and offerings. I have a, a few announcements before we jump into the sermon and the text that Molly uh, read so well for us just a moment ago. The first is our key word, our key idea, our sort of vision word for 2020 is what? It's consistency. And it's, we've been pretty good, right? We've been pretty faithful in, in showing up and giving. Our attendance has been over 100 uh, every week, and, and the Lord has, has blessed mightily your consistency. So my encouragement to us here at the end of month number two uh, of 2020 is to, to continue being faithful in the small things, uh, committing yourselves to inputs and trusting God with outputs. Uh, the second announcement is, uh, as I shared through uh, sobbing last Sunday uh, at the end of the service, Nancy Hill, uh, a member here at Resurrection, passed away, and I got to join Reverend Watts, and uh, mainly Reverend Watts and I, but a host of other pastors to uh, lead her homegoing ceremony, her funeral service at Grace uh, Bible Church, and um, I, I witnessed firsthand the power of what happens when a, a mover and shaker in the city, man, a, a gifted woman who had conquered the world, it seemed, in many ways, gives her life to Jesus, and we come to the, the funeral, and from 11 o'clock until we had to start the service, it was just a nonstop flow of people coming, and we got to stand up and, and present the gospel to the most powerful folks in, in our city because of one woman's faithfulness. And uh, it was just such a fitting and appropriate way to celebrate Nancy and to remember her. I shared the story that I shared here last week uh, that if you didn't catch, I'll share briefly. When we first moved in here uh, a year and five months ago, uh, we were a church of about 80 and probably 80% sort of in the same uh, age bracket. And I all but begged anyone over the age of 50 to join the church. We had our first membership class, and I was like, I know we're young, I, I know, but, you know, the service has some historical elements, and, and uh, please join our church. Young folk need wisdom. I want to be more diverse in every sense of the word. Uh, and Nancy heard that call and, and joined and helped us out and uh, was a great member to us. And I pray that there will be many more Nancys uh, rise up in our church and in our community. Uh, a second announcement, sort of going off her example, we are uh, beginning to have conversations, well we've already begun having conversations with our missions partners. We partner in two places, in uh, Prague and the Czech Republic, to help plant churches, and we partner in South Asia, in Madhya Pradesh, India, to help plant churches. And we've been going back and forth with those partners about some trip dates for the rest of 2020 and then into 2021. And so uh, if you're interested in being a part of that, we can share more specifics as we get them uh, and as we can serve our partners the best way that we can. I think that's all the announcements I have, so let's jump into the sermon. In the Sermon on the Mount, which we're spending a significant portion of time in, Jesus is introducing his disciples to the life's, life he's calling them to live. He is redefining how they, and by extension us, think about the good life. He is defining true righteousness, a righteousness that pleases God. And he's showing us how that's lived out in the everyday stuff of life. Jesus is reorienting our religious practices. He's reshaping the way we think about practicing that 
righteousness. When you give, don't be like the hypocrites. When you pray, don't be like the Pharisees, the ultra-religious people, or the pagans, the irreligious people. Both of their prayers are in some ways wrong. Let's jump into verses 16 to 18, right here in the introduction, to continue this reorientation of our religious practices and then provide some context for the portion of Scripture we'll focus on this morning. So we get the heart of what we've been reading again as we pick up in verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may, be, may not be seen by others, but by your Father, who's in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Like the last couple of weeks, it's not if you pray or if you give, it's when you pray, when you give. Not if you fast, but when you fast, when you continue this religious practice, don't do it externally for other people to see. Do it internally as an act of worship to Almighty God. When you fast, don't do it like the hypocrites so that others can see them and see how spiritual they are and wish that they could be more like them. But when you fast, fast in such a way that only you and your Father know you're fasting, and He will reward you. Central to this whole passage of Scripture where we've been and where we're going is this idea of reward. Jesus has drawn a sharp line between the motives and rewards of the Pharisees, the religious folk, and the motives and rewards of the disciple. He puts the hypocrite on one side and the faithful disciple on the other side. The hypocrite is motivated by what? By something external. The hypocrite is motivated by being seen. The hypocrite is motivated because whatever he gets from being seen is worth the act of doing whatever he's doing. They are motivated by the attention or praise of man. Their lives are then ordered in such a way to achieve that reward. They want the praise of man, don't miss this, because they place a high value on the praise of man. There is a relationship between our motivations and our valuations. Our motives and what we want, what we value. Our priorities in life are determined by that which we deem as most important. Our priorities are determined by that which we deem as most important. Now let's bring it down even further. In your life you see something as worthy. You're motivated to achieve that which you see as worthy or worth something. You focus on that, and then that changes the way you live, the things you do on Saturday nights and Wednesday mornings and Thursday afternoons and all points in between. You focus on it, and you live towards it. Let's bring it down even further. Something grips your heart. Something grabs your focus, and it changes the way you walk. See, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus isn't just reorienting our religious activity. He's not just teaching us a different way to be religious. He's gripping our hearts. He's grabbing our focus, and he's inviting us to walk his way. He's gripping our hearts. He's grabbing our focus, and he's beckoning us to follow him and 
live his way, not their way. Let's just read the whole text as it is from Matthew 6, 19 through 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and what? Money. You cannot serve God and money. Now, the danger of a sermon like this, the danger of talking about priorities and putting God first, is that it just descends into platitudes and spiritual check marks that we think we've already checked. Right? You know the Sunday school answers. Put God first. Focus on Jesus. Live for God. I do that. I do that. And we just hear it, and it's just another Sunday, and it doesn't prompt or spark any self-reflection in our hearts and in our minds. So to help drive home the point that Jesus is speaking to real people in real bodies in a real world, I've ordered this sermon around three real body parts. Our hearts, our eyes, and our hands. First, we'll consider our hearts and the things that we love. Second, we'll consider our eyes and that on which we focus. And third, we'll consider our hands, the things we do every day, the way we walk, the things we work on, and the way we live. So first, we'll consider our hearts. Let's pick up in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Verse 20, but lay up for yourselves in treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. After that command, the only real command in the text, there's an explanatory statement. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here Jesus appeals to basic logic and wisdom. Your treasures on earth do not last. Right? Don't live for something that is not going to last. Don't give your life for that which you cannot keep. It is pure folly to live for that which does not last. Perhaps you've heard uh, that famous quote from that famous missionary Jim Elliot. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Essentially, Jesus is teaching his disciples, live today for that which will matter in eternity. That's not how the religious people or the irreligious people are living. The Pharisees and the Gentiles, that means those who think they're part of the God's family and those who know they're not part of the God of Israel's family. They're all living for things that are passing away. They're giving their lives for things that they cannot keep. Even their greatest treasures are temporary. They can be lost. They can be stolen. They can become irrelevant. And even if they're never lost, even if they're never stolen, and even if they never become irrelevant, like one day they will outlast you. 
you will die. And there's no prize for dying with a lot of stuff. Maybe at best you can pass it down to your kids, but guess what fate awaits them? Death, and they pass it down, and they pass it down, and then there's just a bunch of stuff. It just seems so logical, right? Oh, okay, yeah, like, I want to live for things that are going to matter in heaven. I want to live for things that are going to matter eternally. The, the problem is that we have a problem implementing that logic. Even though it makes sense, even though we get the wisdom, there's a disconnect. What keeps us from living in such a way that we're storing our treasures in heaven? What we mean by that is, what keeps us from orienting our lives in such a way that we're living for today for what's going to matter in 10 billion years? Not that we have a, a heavenly treasury and we're like, I'm going to do this, that's going to get me 10 X, Y, Z in the kingdom of God, right? But it's that I'm living God's way, I'm submitting to his rule, I'm submitting to his plan, and he's using my story in his eternal story in his own way. It just seems so logical what keeps us from living for treasures in heaven. Man, we just really love the treasures of earth. What you love is going to determine how you live. You treasure what you love and you love what you treasure. We live for the things of the world because we've assigned them greater value than the things of heaven. If I've learned anything in life, it's that the greater desire always wins. I'm teaching a public speaking class right now over at the Union Mission, and we're having a black, we're having too much fun, I think, in the class. I hope they don't come to audit it. But um, it's going really well. The first week, sort of introductions, and I shared sort of about public speaking, and I said, listen, man, you know, it's a, it's a big part of my job, and I shared about, like, types of speeches, and I gave them the homework assignments for the year, or for the, for the, for the month or so, a couple months that we're doing it. Uh, I talked a lot about preparation, all that stuff, and then the next week, I came in, and I talked about the delivery, and I felt like that cool professor, right? I stood up, and I said, the first rule of delivering a speech, there are no rules, and everybody was like, oh, yeah, you know what I'm saying? But I was also talking about sort of um, my job preaching, and I was sharing some of these ideas that were mulling over in my head, and I shared this phrase with them, and it was like a light bulb went off in the room, and I've shared it with us before. I don't know how I got there. I was preaching to them probably. I don't remember. I think they were going along with it. I don't know. Don't audit it, right? Um, I said, guys, you know, you hear over and over again that the Christian life is just like, it's just teaching, right? We, we associate the living out of Christianity, which is teaching and learning. We come, we sit like this, someone talks, we listen, and then we learn, and then we think we, we change. And that, that, that's a crucial part of the Christian life. But fundamentally, the Christian life isn't just indoctrination. The Christian life is love reorientation. Here's what I mean by that. The Christian life isn't about just amassing more knowledge. It's about learning new things. The Christian life fundamentally is about reorienting our loves towards God's kingdom. We change what we love and we change how we live. We're not, this is the line that got them, I think especially because many of them are in recovery. You're not so much pushed by what you believe as you're pulled by what you want. You're not so much pushed by what you believe, you're pulled by what you want. So the, at the heart of Christianity 
is wanting and longing for the kingdom of God. And that's what's pulling me. That's what's shaping me. That's what's changing me. When God grips our hearts in the gospel, right, and contained in that gospel word is so much, these ideas that he created all things, that he knows me and he loves me and he loves my neighbor, that he sent his son to make all things right from my heart to the heavens. And he is inviting me to participate in that renewal plan of all things. When I hear the God of that gospel, I get excited about living for the things of heaven because God in the gospel has gripped my heart and invited me into his story. When I hear the gospel and understand the gospel and mind the depths of the gospel, I experiencing the love, I experience the love of God. As I experience God's love, the longings of my heart are fulfilled. As Augustine says in Confessions, the heart is restless until it finds its rest in God. When we taste and see that God is better than anything the world has to offer, we just begin to live by a different script than everyone else. Living in God's kingdom means loving the God of that kingdom and being faithful to live in active response to who he is and what he's doing. Now, we don't live detached from the world. We don't just sit back and watch it burn. We don't live without focus and without any ambition. We live with sanctified focus. We live with sanctified ambition, carrying out our lives in such a way that is of eternal consequence. Living in such a way that we're not just laying up treasures on earth, but we're laying up treasures in heaven. Let's dig into that idea of renewed, sanctified focus, sanctified ambition in verses 22 through 23. Let's consider our eyes. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? If it makes you feel any better, when I first read this text, I said, what does that mean? <laughs> this is a very complex metaphor. Uh, Spurgeon, in his sermon on it, says, this sounds like it's from the Proverbs, but let me guess as to what it means. And he goes on for an hour to explain what he thinks it means in that time. It's a complex and confusing metaphor. Now, we can glean some from the context, right? We know it's sandwiched between statements about treasures and money. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The statement about the eye is the lamp of the body. And then again, Jesus teaches, you cannot serve two masters. You'll love one and hate the other. You can't serve God and money. We also know when we look at the actual text in the Greek, there's some wordplay going on here. The same verbiage is used in Matthew 20, that the parable of a lot of people working, and then some work longer, some work shorter. The guys who work shorter get the same pay as those who work longer. And essentially, the, 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 the rebuke that goes to them when they complain is that their eye is bad, right? We're still thinking about money there. So there's this idea of being stingy. There's this idea of being self-centered, being focused on our Selves. We know that in biblical literature, the eye is somewhat like the heart. The eye is the lamp of the body. It shines out what is inside. And a lamp is also used to light our path. 
Your word is a lamp unto my feet, right? So in, in a sense, that lamp is shining what is inside, and that lamp is also sort of casting light on what lies outside. And I know that the way I use this organ that is my eye, when I look through it, I'm bringing that into focus. When I use a lamp, I'm, I'm lighting my path. In play here is this question of vision, this question of focus, this question of where are you looking? Physical vision helps us see where we're going, and physical vision helps us see what we're doing. If our spiritual vision, then, is correctly focused, our lives are filled with light. And if our spiritual vision is not correctly focused, our lives are filled with darkness. And how great is that darkness? If I can't see straight, it's really hard to walk straight. I think, in essence, Jesus is saying, you can't see straight when you're focused on yourself. You can't see straight when you've got a bad heart. You can't see straight when you've placed all the value on the wrong kind of treasure. You can't see straight when you're focused on the treasures of earth instead of the treasures of heaven. When you're focused on the treasures of earth, you're just going to follow them with reckless abandon, and you're not going to realize all the spiritual darkness that is within you. Our eyes are intricately connected with our hearts. Seeing and loving are so connected. You can't see straight when you love the things of the world. My loves determine my focus which determine my actions. My loves determine my focus, and my focus feeds my loves, and I live in response to that. Now, we haven't spoken much on the eyes, but we're going to jump ahead to the hands and begin to put all this together, because it's all interrelated. We've thought about our hearts, we've thought a little about our eyes, now let's think about our hands and consider to whom we are giving our lives in service. Verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't be two places at once. You can't give your lives fully to two things at once. You cannot serve God and money. Reflective questions for you. Where is your treasure? What do you love? Where is your focus? Where are your eyes? What are you giving attention to? Where is your treasure? Where is your focus? And I'll argue that there you found your master. Where is your treasure? Where is your focus? There you found your master. You found your God, functionally. You found the one who's calling the shots in your life. And that master, that God, he's going to tell you how to live. With your life, Jesus is saying, you're ultimately devoted to God or you're not. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying, I don't want a bunch of people who give lip service to God. I want a group of people who understand God is inaugurating his rule and reign 
on earth, and everything I am and everything I do makes sense only in that context. Now, a message like this, as I thought about it and, and prayed through it, uh, it really prompts more questions than answers, but it prompts questions that draw out answers. It's one you chew on, and it's one you think about. You can't serve two masters. You're either serving God or money. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If your eye is good, then your body is good. Things are good. You can see straight. You're okay. Where is my heart? Where is my treasure? Where is my focus? Where are my efforts? And then who am I serving on a day-in and day-out basis? Am I working for the man when I get up and go to work? Am I working to prove something to somebody? Am I working to achieve enough money that I can be really comfortable? Am I working to, to find a spouse? Am I working to what? Like, what is that thing? What are the things that are, are pushing me and propelling me? What are the desires that are pulling me and demanding my allegiance and my obedience? What do I love? What do I want? What do I think about? What am I seeing? And what do I do? Like, on a random Tuesday evening when I don't have anything to do, what am I doing? When I'm alone by myself and no one knows what I'm doing, what am I doing? See, Jesus is teaching that God doesn't just care about the externals. That's a key theme in the Sermon on the Mount. That God cares about what is true, what we really want, how we really live. Where's your treasure? Where's your focus? Who am I serving day in and day out? These ideas of our hearts, our eyes, and our hands are all interconnected. What do I love? What do I do? What do I think about? See, I think a lot of folks get this idea of Jesus as Savior. We hear that all the time in our culture. Like, I grew up in church, and so if you go to a church event, you hear the gospel, and that's condensed down into sort of a personal call for salvation. That, uh, would you hear this message? Would you believe this? Close your eyes, count to three, raise your hands, etc., etc., etc. Accept Jesus as your Savior. He saves me from, from, from my sins. Right? Also prevalent is the idea of Jesus as Lord, even though we struggle with that one in practicality a little bit more. Right? Jesus is our Savior. He saves us from our sins, but Jesus is our Lord. He calls the shots. We submit our lives to him and not just ourselves. And we hear that adage, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And if I could be so bold as to offer a third word this morning, I think there's a key idea that many, many, many more are missing. Jesus is our Lord, Jesus is our Savior, and Jesus is our treasure. Jesus is our Lord, Jesus is our Savior, and Jesus is our treasure. When we see him for who he is, we cannot help but love him. The things of the earth may still be attractive, but here's the key, church. We fight desire with what? Greater desire. <laughs> I want the things of the earth, yeah, but man, I want Jesus more. And that greater desire pulls me, and it beckons me, and I'm able to say no to this because I place my value so greatly on this. It might be nice to do this, 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 but I understand its value. I understand it's fleeting. I understand it passes away. My eyes are fixed on Jesus. 
the things of earth may still be attractive, but we fight desire with greater desire. Yeah, that stuff's fine, but, but look at Jesus. I fix my eyes on him. My heart is fixed on him, and my hands are serving him. If you have a Bible with you, flip over to Philippians 3. It's not going to be on the screen. Um, if you don't, we've got Bibles in the back. We'd love for you to keep them, and next time, you know, walk in and grab one before you sit down, and, and you can keep it. It's yours. Um, in Philippians 3, all these ideas of heart and hand and eyes are working together. They're fitting together so well in how Paul is explaining his walk with Christ. In verse 7, we pick up, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Don't miss this. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. All the things of the world, in Paul's situation, all the religious titles and trappings, he said, I count them as loss. I count them as rubbish. I count them as nothing. Why? Because of the what? The surpassing worth of Christ. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Skip down to verse 10. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this. <laughs> Or I'm already perfect. This is one of my favorite lines in the whole Bible. But I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. What a beautiful phrase. He said, I've not arrived. This is the Apostle Paul, man. He wrote the new, much of the New Testament. He said, I haven't arrived. I don't have it all together. But this I do know. I press on. Not because I've made this my own but because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, here we go, questions of focus, questions of focus, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Forgetting what's behind Straining for what is ahead, I press on for the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we've attained. Verse 17, brothers, this is so key as well. Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Keep your eyes, keep your focus on those who walk according to the example that you have in us, the apostles, the faithful. We see Paul's heart, we see Paul's eyes, and we see Paul's hands, his feet, his life. God, grab our hearts, grab our eyes. Grab our hands, God, and pull us, body, mind, and soul, into your story.
we celebrated at Nancy's funeral a person who was imperfect. I thought of this passage, it was so appropriate that I was preaching it this week. As Reverend Watts kept repeating in his sermon, she was a witness. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He'd say, did I tell you she's a witness, right? Her story is one in which a heart was grabbed. Ambition was sanctified. The same energy she would use in the courtroom, she's going to use to take the gospel to our city. And she's going to do whatever she's got to do to make it happen. Her story is just one of millions of stories like that. It's how God's people live. And why do we live this way? It's in fledgling form in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is teaching that God's people in the world are people who have their hearts awakened to the beauty of God. Their minds fixed on the glory of God. And their hands on the plow for the work of God. Forgetting what lies behind and straining to what lies behind. Not serving the treasures of the earth. Not trying to get more stuff, more power, more education. More, 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 more. But living for the gospel. Living for the glory of God to be made known to the nations. And Nate, if you want to come on up as we wind to a close. And if you want to bring the res kids down so they can be a part of the Lord's Supper this week. That would be great. I end with another sort of leading question, a question that I hope you'll ask yourself in reflection here in just a moment. Uh, how can I live this way? What do I have to do today to begin loving God with all my heart, with all my body, with all my mind? The short answer I'll give away right now, and the long answer will plumb the depths of next week. The short answer is by faith. By faith. Jesus is teaching, don't store up treasures on earth for yourself. Store up treasures in heaven. Don't live for that which is fading. Don't live for that which is temporal. Don't live for that which is passing away. Live for that which is going to matter forever. Well, don't I have to Lay up some treasures. Jesus will say next week, don't be anxious about your life. What you'll eat, what you'll drink, about your body, what you'll put on. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow. They don't reap. But your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than the birds in the air? And by being anxious about stuff, can you do anything with that? Can you add a single second to your life by being anxious? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies out in the field, how they grow. They don't toil or spin. But I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory and grandeur was not just like them. If God clothes the grass in the field, how much more will he clothe you, oh, you of little faith? Don't be anxious saying, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? The Gentiles seek these things, man. The Gentiles are just living to survive. God knows you need to eat and drink and be clothed properly. He's going to take care of you. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you.
in this sermon, we're getting to the heart of the matter. Let's put away the Sunday school check mark and ask yourself sincerely, who or what am I seeking? If I could have my greatest desire, what would it be? How am I praying? How am I living? Let's pray. God, help us see you and help us love you. Help us fix our eyes on you and live the lives you've called us to live. Help us by your spirit, your word, and your body, the church. Help us discern our place in your story. Help us live in such a way that we're not storing up treasures on earth where they'll fade away and be forgotten. But help us live in such a way that will ripple through eternity. Make us useful in your kingdom. Give us a vision of our lives being bigger than us. Help us seek first your kingdom and your righteousness and trust you with all else. In Christ's name we pray.